Hi there, and welcome to the Interiors Podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Neufeld-Flanagan, expat and interior designer based in Dublin, Ireland. This show is all about informing and inspiring you, homeowners and renters in Ireland, on all things around property, housing, and home, from self-building to choosing flooring. In each episode, we interview industry experts and homeowners to give you practical advice and the motivation to create and elevate your spaces. Welcome back to another interview of the Interiors Podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Neufeld-Flanagan, interior designer, and I am here to talk to you about planning. Uh, Here with me, I have Luke Weimer, who is a planning consultant uh, and an associate director at a big planning and development consultancy here in Dublin. Welcome, Luke. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks very much, Tanya. I'm a planning consultant based in Dublin. I work for um, a company that's we're based in the city centre, but we work on projects across the country. So um, a big range, everything from large residential developments through to energy developments, logistics, infrastructure. So kind of anything, you you name it, we've done it. Generally larger scale stuff. I know we're going to talk a bit later on about uh, kind of individual dwellings and changes to, to homes. Wouldn't have an enormous amount of experience in that, funnily enough, but um, in a professional capacity. But I've had to deal with it a bit myself with my own property. And obviously, it's something that I get asked about as well. I guess at, the, at its very core, planning is is basically trying. It, it's an interference with people's private po- property rights. You know? <laughs> if, if there was no planning system, you know, people might think life would be much easier. Yeah. But, um, you know, you might find you'd you'd build your lovely house on your land, but then you wouldn't have any water connection or a sewer. Yeah. Or, you know, obviously there's there's an interface with engineering as well and infrastructure. I, I guess that the whole point is to try and improve people's quality of life, to target where people live towards areas where they can be better supported in terms of infrastructure sure. and services. And, and, and you know, there's there's kind of a top-down approach in Ireland, I guess, where you, you've got a kind of a system of plans right from the very top, which is the the national planning framework, which has uh, projections for population and and where people should be targeted to to live. So where housing growth should happen. In my personal opinion, the the projections in the, the NPF, the national planning framework, they're significantly out of date. And they need to be updated very quickly because Ireland's population has grown much, much faster. And there's been a, a much bigger influx of people into Ireland since yep. kind of 2016 that the MPF was based on 2016 um population data from the CSO so that that kind of top level plan filters down into regional plans and into local plans so your your county development plan or your local area plan um okay and that's so, the ones that have the biggest impact on on people as individuals i suppose yeah so that's kind of the macro level and then let's say that if somebody's trying to convert a house into apartments but yeah. The council have decided they don't want that area to grow too much more because it's already under strain from an in- infrastructure point of view. That might be one of the things that's going uh, into consideration to reject something like that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of, an, uh, I guess, a negative example. But in, in, a, in a positive example, you might find that there's somewhere where, you know, land is very badly under, underutilized. Like you could look at areas of Dublin City where you've got half empty or empty warehousing and light industrial units and they're sitting right on top of like the Grand Canal and a Lewis stop so you know good planning would say that that that's crazy you know we're wasting that and there's an opportunity there to provide really good quality homes where people can use public transport to get to work cycle to work walk to work and then you know have a nice quality of, of life in their in their local area too Okay. So you're not, you're, they're not always the enemy. (laughs) Um, I guess not. (laughs) So what exactly do you do in your, in your day-to-day you, you help. So a developer who wants to build, you know, um, a whole housing development or offices, they come to you as a kind of project manager and and middleman to interpret laws. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, we work, we work kind of collaboratively with the design team. Like you said, a developer might have, a piece of land or indeed you know somebody might want to to change something in their house and if it requires planning permission sometimes you know sometimes an architect with smaller applications often you know an architect might handle them but when things get a little bit more complicated and you're going to have to deal with multiple different disciplines say engineers environmental consultants yeah. and so on and um, you'd often bring in a planning consultant 
So uh, we'd be approached often at a very early stage. So when someone is looking at buying land or when they've just purchased land in terms of the feasibility of what could potentially mm-hmm. be developed on it. And then if they decide to pull the trigger on going forward with the design and with the planning application, we would coordinate the design team. Often to be kind of a design lead, usually the architect. Um, so we look, we co- collaborate with people to try and bring together an application that's got the best chance of complying with the development plan and the regulations and, and ultimately getting permission. You have a pretty good track record, right? Ah, not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> not too bad. One thing that you said is I think will be really interesting to anyone listening who are mainly people considering buying a home or renovating a home. You said in in the smaller applications of planning, it's usually the architect who who takes care of it. So you're, you intervene in these huge multi-million euro deals. But for the most part, if somebody's just doing a single family home, that is the architect. If, if you have an architect, that's who's going to be doing the planning permission, right? Yeah, well, it, I suppose, look, it, it's a mixed bag. If something is going to be more complicated, and, and look, sometimes even if, if somebody's doing something, they may just feel more comfortable um, having, a, having a planner on board because an architect... Look, generally speaking, they'll obviously they'll they'll be well familiar with the requirements of the development plan and with the building regulations and with the mechanics of the planning legislation as yeah. well. But you know, I suppose they they probably they generally wouldn't be writing you know a detailed planning report to assess all of the policies in the development plan. So they're you know you're you're probably de-risking an application a little bit if you mm-hmm. do get a planner on board or even get some some preliminary advice. Um, um, what you could or could not uh, go forward with. Okay, cool. Maybe we'll circle back to that at the end. Like, in what cases you think people should per- pursue some some advice at what stage and what people could could expect to spend. I suppose the bigger question is what requires planning and what doesn't. So, unless there's a specific obze- exemption from uh, the requirement for planning, pretty much anything, any any building works really, any um, any development requires planning. So there, there's a definition of development in the Planning Act, which I think is any works on, in or underground. Now, there are, as I said, there are exemptions from that uh, because obviously it wouldn't be much good for anyone if you wanted to kind of build a, a short, a, a small wall in your front garden and you had to go for a planning application to do that. Um, so there's there's exemptions provided in the, in the Act, but also in the regulations that list various circumstances where you don't require planning permission to do works. So examples of that would be, say, the there is an, a general exemption for extensions up to a certain limit, mm-hmm. uh, generally 40 square meters, but you must kind of subtract any previous ex- extensions to yep. the house, um, from that figure. Unless and they were built pre-63, right? Pre-63, yeah. Well, pre- actually, uh, pre- people say pre-63, but I think it's before the 1st of October in 1964, which is when the planning act came into force, the, the 63 Act is, is the name of the Act, but I think it was, okay. it was a bit after that when it came into force. So that maybe that would help. <laughs> um, there, there's other limitations as well as to where the, exe- the uh, extension can be. Um, it has to be generally to the rear of the house. It can't break roof lines. There's a limit as well on any upper floor extension, um, which is generally, I think, 12 metres squared. Mm-hmm. And again, if there's any upper floor extension existing, you have to subtract that. You can't take your private open space, your back garden generally. Uh, it can't go below 25 square meters as a result of the extension that you're doing. And what if your garden, like I'm thinking of small terraces I've seen in Portobello. What if the existing garden is already less than that? Then you just yeah. can't build. So I, I suppose that there'd probably be a distinction between you know, replacing something that already was there if there was an extension there in place. Yeah. But you certainly, without doing plan- a planning application, you couldn't reduce the garden further. Okay. I think that's good to know a lot for anyone buying in a city, like in uh, a terraced house. Five, like a 25 square meter garden is a like, nice size. <laughs> yeah, it's considerable enough. Yeah. <laughs> when you consider the amount of private open space that an apartment you know, you know, a three bed apartment or four bed apartment, even yeah. you're obviously a rarity, but like a larger apartments um, would, would require much less private open space than 25 square meters. So there is a bit of a, um, a disconnect there. 
But the, uh, in fact, the government are actually currently looking at publishing new guidelines for new houses, that is, that'll reduce the amount of private open space that can, can be provided. Yeah, in cer- certain circumstances, it could provide for, for a pretty nice standard while still fitting a few more houses onto sites, I suppose. Yeah, it's just like, that would be nice, but we don't have the space for that. And most, if you look at, I don't know, Paris, Barcelona, other continental cities where people actually live in the city center and in apartments, people don't have that. <laughs> no, no, they don't. Yeah. One question. So what if you have an old, horrible extension and you want to just redo it and you're not changing the footprint? Do you need planning for that? I, I'd say generally not. Um, obviously, there's a distinction if, there's, if it's a protected structure yeah. um, that can add another layer of complication. But if you're just refurbishing something, um, as long as you're not materially affecting the external appearance. So that's kind of a subjective matter of judgment, really. But there's another exemption under Section 41H of the Act which allows for you to do works for the improvement of structures where it doesn't materially affect the external appearance. Right. So you're just repairing, like your shed is collapsing and or the oh, back yeah. something. Yeah. Oh, you'd be delighted to hear there's another there's another type of exemption for sheds and garages. Yay! <laughs> yeah. There's a whole list of them, and I guess if if someone's looking at at doing something small like that, the best thing to do is just to look at. Um, the schedules it's uh it's schedule two of the the regs um and there's a, there's a whole long list and importantly okay. there's, there's a list of uh limitations where you know if you think you're exempt you might look down the, the column on the, the right hand side and think you know we're, we're actually not because we're caught out by one of these these uh limitations so yeah, yeah okay cool yeah we'll put that in the show notes what about attic conversions if they're to the rear and they're not affecting, they're not changing the roof line. Yeah, I think generally exempt. Again, cool. you know, you'd, you'd have to look at any limitations in the regulations. Yeah. Um, and similarly, if you're in a protected structure, that there, there, you could have an issue there because um, that really it pairs away a lot of the exemptions that you can avail of. So, yeah. Okay. And so just thinking, like, of, I'm thinking of your friends and family, they know you're a planning expert, I'm sure. Lots mm. of them are at the stage where they're thinking of buying or have bought or your parents' friends. Um, what's the most common question you get with regards to to planning? Because I what I hear a lot is people are deciding, well, I just renovate and avoid planning. So yeah. work around the limitations. Or should I go full hog and just deal with it? Like, is it that big of an inconvenience? What do you typically say? Yeah, so uh, funnily enough, the... the, the uh... Um, maybe unfortunately the most common uh question i get asked about planning is how do i stop this you know um (laughs) oh how do i object how do do i get my neighbors yeah Yeah. lovely love that it's an unfortunate feature in ireland i think that it is oh my god it's quite adversarial and like while people obviously it's completely fair and right that people have an opportunity to make their views known i think maybe the narrative has gotten a bit skewed here and th- there's there's quite a i don't know th- there's a a real issue with people not wanting more more housing in their in their local areas i i personally find that that difficult but i guess maybe if if people have lived for a long time in a, in a particular area fortunately the the pace of change is is greater now and it has to be greater because we're facing like some pretty severe crises like we're we're facing an obviously an accommodation crisis but we're also facing a, a climate crisis. So the reality is we can't keep putting people in greenfield locations where you're not stepping on anyone's toes. We have to actually step on people's toes a little bit. Obviously, there has to be proper design. That, you know, you have to be sensitive to other people's residential amenity. But a scenario where, you know, the site down the road doesn't get developed for a few apartments, I just don't think that can that can stay the way, you know? No, completely. I mean, all you have to do is, like, I drove down... Anger Street yesterday and just looking at so many buildings like priceless real estate just yeah. shuttered empty and I'm like could be apartments could be apartments could be apartments like you look at any other continental city people no. live in the city center in on top of shops absolutely there's yeah. there's issues there around around building regs and fire safety as well as yeah but, but what I would say is there actually is quite an attractive exemption at the moment for the okay vacant commercial buildings can be converted into apartments uh, without necessarily needing planning. 
Wow. Now, yeah, yeah, it's quite a powerful exemption. Um, and it also applies to, say, uh, pubs, for example. And there's been a good few pubs that have been converted into apartments. Yeah, um, I thought that was a rural thing only now, the, the pub one. Or it, it applies. Well, it, it, the, most, of, most of the empty pubs are, are rural pubs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I believe it actually applies to, to urban wow. areas. Um, so I look, personally, yeah, I wish I wish there was more people who were looking at those buildings like you are and um, we're seeing the opportunity that they hold because there's so much building stock in Ireland that, um, you know, really, really good quality. It could be Victorian or Georgian even, mm-hmm. and it's sitting there vacant. And the level of workmanship and the the man hours, the sheer effort that went into building those mm-hmm. structures, like you'd never, you, you could spend an absolute fortune in, in today's money and you'd never get the same build quality. Never. Uh, you know, you wouldn't get the the hand carved uh, granite steps or the you know the the wrought iron railings unless yeah. you were to literally take take the top or the up the upward limit off your budget. So yeah, I, I there's definitely a, a massive opportunity there. There's a couple of small developers who I, I guess have made it their business to to identify opportunities on in those kind of buildings. And there's one or two examples in town in, in Dublin city centre where vacant buildings have been refurbished. And done really successfully. There's, there's actually one on the on, on the along the keys. Um, people might might be familiar with, um, just across from Dublin City Council, more or less. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways, yeah, <laughs> we could we could go on a rant here of everything that should be done. Um, yeah. But actually, going back to the most common question you get with the neighbors, like that is a big one. Um, and on the flip side of that, if you are go- uh, intending to renovate your house or um, buy something. With the, with the intention to extend like that's the only reason you actually want the house hmm. how do you think people should deal with neighbors for the the best possible outcome I, i'd always recommend you know engaging as much as possible I, I i think now more than ever because at the moment if you need planning permission for something and you have a neighbor who's willing to who you know who's upset about it and he might appeal any granted permission to embark on mm. that, that, that that's a very significant issue for you um, in normal times, you know, five years ago, on board Planola would have decided an appeal in eighteen weeks. You know, give or week, give or take a week or two. But at the moment, it's taking upwards of a year due to really significant kind of structural issues in the board. And you know, yeah. we'll publicity about that, obviously. Um, so I won't go into it. But you know, if you're what? trying to go on, sorry. So one thing you're just you're showing your expertise here. You're jumping ahead. So yeah. what a lot of people don't understand is, so the council, your local council first makes a decision. Yeah. Okay. And so there's, so you apply, right? You apply. There's an eight, you week, apply. eight week decision time frame from the council. The first five weeks of um, that, that eight weeks is a, a public consultation period. So people can make observations or submissions. Um, and that's not just limited to neighbors. You know, somebody in, in, in Cork could, put in an observation on some something in Dublin if they wanted to. Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I've looked, there's good and bad things about that. Um, yeah. But uh, after that, the council can either ask for further information at the end of that eight-week period, or they can grant permission or refuse permission. Now, if you get a further information request, that kind of puts, puts it back over to the applicant. They have to submit that further information within six months, generally. Um, and there's a, f- a further four weeks in most circumstances for the council to decide. Um, but once, yeah, so once you get your, your your ultimate decision from the council, whether it is to grant or refuse permission, there's then a four week appeal window. Um, and again, anyone who has made a, an observation or submission uh, is is allowed to make an appeal. And there's certain other circumstances, say where it's a direct neighbor and something significant has changed at a further information stage where they can seek mm. leave to appeal. So people can actually get into the process later on. Wow. They don't necessarily have to have made a submission or observation, but that's if something pretty, changed. It's quite rare that people would be yeah. there. There's also um, kind of a, a backdoor for some environmental NGOs to appeal where they haven't made any wow. observation. Okay. And you, they can also approve it with conditions, right? So if there's some one thing they don't like, but everything else is fine, they can approve based on that being removed? Correct. Yeah. So there'll always, well, I've never seen a, a grant of permission without any conditions. On it. 
Okay. Uh, okay. So there's always conditions. <laughs> yeah. But but generally, you know, what, what you're talking about there, I think, is that, a, you know, there'd be a point of detail the council or the board wouldn't be happy with in the application. And instead of, you know, kicking it back out to a further information request, yeah. Or even refusing permission. Worse again, um, they'll they'll just change that that small aspect of the the permission, and they'll require maybe submission of new drawings, for example, to change something, um, and that has to be agreed with the council then before you actually go and commence the works on site. Okay. So okay. it's a more pragmatic way than than just kicking it back to touch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of explains why you were saying engage with your neighbors because. If it goes beyond the city council to the national planning body, uh, to board Planala, that creates huge delays now just because of because they're backlogged. Correct. Yeah. So look, I'm very hopeful that that those delays will will reduce in the coming months because they actually have, for the first time in a long time, got a full uh, a full uh, allocation of board members, and it's been increased to 15 board members as well. So. Yeah, fingers crossed that'll that'll improve things. But um, at the moment, you you really don't want to get appealed if you can avoid it. Okay. So the aim is to try to come to an agreement on something with your neighbors before you even apply, if you can. Yeah, I mean, if you're say if you're you're putting in an application to extend your house or to refurbish okay. your house, um, it's never any harm generally. Obviously, there's exceptions if, if you've got a, a you know somebody living next door who who's quite difficult. For example, you might just have to hope for the best. Um, yeah. But in, you know, generally speaking, if you if you speak to people and and show them what you're planning to do and why you're doing it and what you've, I guess the measures you've taken to make sure that they are not going to be affected in any way, that that's very important. And you know, for people living next door in, in the local area it's not just about the actual development how it's going to look um it's often more about like how are they going to be affected during the construction yeah. work they have young oh, kids during um, construction. What, okay. what kind of measures are going to be taken on site to mitigate say dust or noise or things like that yeah okay that makes sense um so then going to to my other question that i see when it comes to planning where people say this seems like a lot of work and a lot of waiting and mm. a lot of what ifs, you know, for anyone waiting to do this, they maybe are either living in a house that isn't working for them or they're living in other accommodation um, because they haven't moved in um, or they need to move out and, and pay with like when work start. Yeah. So all delays cost money for, for people. So is going for planning worth it? If like if it's the difference between you know a slightly bigger extension, like how big a deal is it? Yeah, I, look, it it really is a case by case thing. Of course, um, it depends on on you know what are the risks of someone objecting. Are mm -hmm. are you likely to get through the system clean? Um, if you are likely to get through a clean, you know, then maybe you, you want to go for it. But uh, you know, like I could definitely see times um, when someone would say. It's just not worth it. We'll reduce by, by a few square, square meters here and there um, and we'll, we'll go with something that's exempt. Uh, it's, sorry, it's important to note as well that if you're unsure about something, whether it's exempt or not, you can put in what's known as a Section 5 application to the council and they are obliged then to write back to you within four weeks. So it's quite a nice tight time frame. Um, wow. they'll, they'll respond as to whether the, the works actually comprise um exempted development or whether they're actually development at all in some circumstances so wow. that can be really really helpful and again at the moment as as the legislation currently is that's quite a powerful thing to have because once you have that section five declaration it's it's uh you know it's it's legally binding somebody else can't really go behind it um now unfortunately i won't get into it but the legislation is due to change in the next few months so everything's <laughs> going to be thrown up in the air again um, and as it stands, the the provisions around exemption development are are pretty. They're looking a bit scary, shall we say? So, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll Does that mean like square meters might change for extensions? Honestly, we don't know because yeah. what, what what's happened in the draft legislation is that the detail that was in the act, the planning act, at the moment has kind of been stripped out. So they're leaving a lot over for, for new regulations, which we haven't seen yet. So okay. that, can, that in itself can lead to quite a bit of uncertainty. If you're looking, you know, six months, nine months down the road, 
you just don't know what sort of framework you're going to be putting it in under whether you're going to be wow. exempt. Um, okay. And there's also currently actually a provision in the the draft bill that that would actually make it much more difficult to rely on a, an exempted development certificate, uh, which is I think personally think is very very unhelpful because it's it's a really important way for people to to get a bit of comfort that what they're doing is is okay and they don't need to to do a full blown planning application. Yeah, kind of inherently contradictory. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in terms of timelines then, so somebody's trying to weigh up this decision and I totally get it's a case-by-case basis, um, mm. whether it's worth it or not for people's individual situations. How long would you say like, and I, I know we'll talk about protected structures soon as well. If somebody's just going for a standard planning application for an extension, how long will that take on top of, you know, just regular design work? So I guess to pull together like the planning drawings and any particulars like the site notice and stuff, you might be looking at an extra month or two at the very start. And That's then very optimistic. <laughs> well, I, I guess you, if you're looking at what what is the additional, if you're already doing a full okay. set of drawings, etc. Okay, okay, okay. Um, now, if you're not doing that, you're, you're looking at a bit more, but... So that's that's right. That's before you you put anything in the door of the council. But I, I guess afterwards, then just going back to those timelines I, I mentioned earlier. Yeah. The absolute best case scenario is you get through in 12 weeks. That's without any further information request, without any appeal at the other end as well. So, yeah. you know, that's not inconsiderable either. Like it's it's, yeah. uh, it's 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 a bit of time. So if you are already engaging somebody to do drawings. And you just need to do the final filing and paperwork. You're saying about a month, and then you've got three months. Best best case scenario, so yeah. four four months extra, and mm-hmm. more realistically, probably like four to six months if you're including like giving the brief of what you want and coming to an agreement on that with a technician or an architect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd four to I'd, six I'd say ballpark. Yeah, and um, yeah. obviously, if you get an appeal, you're I, I couldn't tell you how long it's going to take. That's yeah. The unfortunate reality. So, but you'd be allowing at least, you know, if I, if somebody got appealed today, a client got appealed, I'd be saying you could be in with the board for, you know, it's going to be six months plus, And that's the lower, the lower estimate at the moment, I would say. And do the appeals usually come literally from a disgruntled neighbor? That's the most regular thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, for, wow, and honestly, for most, even for larger applications, the most common uh, appeals would be from from neighbors or for, from local people. Yeah. And um, now, obviously, there's other, there's other types of projects that I work on, say, like, you know, large scale energy projects gotcha, um, yeah. and like transmission projects and stuff where the objections are, are more likely to come from, you know, I guess people who are, who are engaged in that on a regular basis. So, you know, people with particular concerns or um, people who uh, maybe have a vendetta against certain types of development as well. So. Tell us a little bit more about your individual project and how you brought in your expertise. And also, it's a good opportunity for you to tell us the difference that applies, because I know yours was a protected structure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm um, lucky enough to, to to buy a house there in, in 2021. But the house is out. We're out in Bray in County Wicklow, uh, just outside of Dublin. Um, so it's a nice spot. It's on the dart line on the bus and uh, beside the sea, which was important as well. So, like you said, it it is a protected structure, and it's a it's kind of a small Georgian cottage built in eighteen thirty. There's been a small amount of work done at this stage, but looking at getting some more work done, I, I guess that the, the first port of call for people if if they're looking at purchasing a, a property, I I'd really strongly recommend. You know, your solicitor will do a certain amount, but if you have the time to go and look at the local development plan or any local area plan just to double check what the the scene is with uh, the house that's a, that's a really well worthwhile exercise and i think my own experience speaks to that i was looking at the house back in 2021 and it wasn't not nowhere on the advertisement or the uh the brochure or anything uh, was it stated that it was a protected structure so that seemed a bit funny to me and i was in there was a, a kind of a a short bidding war at the when when i went say agreed or before i went say agreed and one thing that I did is I actually I, I sent an email to the, the selling agent and said, you know, just I think you should make it very clear to the other side here 
this is a protected structure and the answer came back no it's not <laughs> oh my god so I said yes it is and I sent on you know obviously sent on the kind of the extract from the the local area plan um so like that that's a pretty material consideration for someone who's looking at buying a property um and I luckily enough for me once once that uh, information got circulated around uh, the other side dropped out so it uh it, it proved pretty important in in my situation um so very important I think to to look into that the yeah other thing as well we're doing is to have a look through every council has a planning search system and that that includes a map search so if you just do a google search for let's say you know dublin city planning search or wicklow county council planning search you'll find that that on the website mm-hmm. and there is a mapped function there for each council where you can go on you can look at your property and i'd recommend looking at your own property the one you're looking at but also having a, a little look around the local area as well, because you don't want to, you know, necessarily get surprised by something that's already got planning down the road. Um, and maybe that maybe that's something that could help reduce uh, objections as well, that somebody yeah. would move into an area and they get the fright of their life if, if there's something going on in, in the local area. Yeah, again, just do that. Just do that search. And it can actually, for me, it, it ruled out some properties just due to just due to things that were planned for the for the locality. And I, I'm sure you can also use it um, to establish precedent, right? So you can yeah. be like, well, you know, my next door neighbor got a huge extension approved there. And it was pretty, you know, what we're doing is not dissimilar to that. So mm. I feel quite confident in buying this house, which is, you know, a terrace and identical replica of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, you know, you can't rely on, on precedent 100%. Yeah. Okay. Definitely a helpful indicator. Um, particularly if it's recent. So there is a difference. If you're, if you're looking at something that was uh, applied for back in, say, the, the 1990s, yeah. things have changed pretty pretty considerably since then. Sure. So you wouldn't really rely on that as much as, as, a, as a precedent for your own, your own house. Um, maybe going back to the, uh, the, the differences around protected structures, though. Yes. The, the planning situation with protected structures is, is quite different to, to a regular a regular house obviously there's protected structures of all sorts some of them are office buildings some of them are old old banks you know um cultural buildings whatever whatever you're having um but but in terms of uh if, if your house or or your your dwelling is a, is in a protected structure um generally it's, it's much more limited as to what you can do without planning permission and that can include for some protected structures plastering a wall or painting a, a wall yeah. inside the house could could actually require planning permission. It all depends on what particular aspects of the building give it its its uh, its special value. So it's you know going to have a particular kind of architectural or cultural, um, or even I think on the list is like a particular scientific value as well. Yeah. So you know you might find that doing something quite small to your house is is something that will trigger um, having to do do a, do a planning application. Now this, so a, how do you know if you're like which things are protected in your individual property then? Well, for some protected structures, if you look at the record of protected structures, which is in the development plan, yeah, they actually state they'll say you know the front facade, the the front railings and the gate, for example. Um, oh wow, okay. But more often than not, it doesn't say that, and it just says you know number twenty, uh, such and such a road, you know. You know, so the whole the whole building then, and actually not only the building, but its curtilage as well, which is like its its uh its gardens, the the lands associated with the house. Yeah, they are Your all boundary walls. Up. I've seen that come up. Exactly, all technically protected. Um, so in terms of what you can do and not do without planning, or or what would or would not affect the 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 special character of the the dwelling, there is a process for that as well. Um, and it's not dissimilar to that section five process that I mentioned earlier and um, you basically write to the council and you say you know you're, you're, you're basically asking them the question what 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 are the works that I could do here without planning permission mm. not so much without planning permission but without affecting the special character of the structure sure um, and they'll 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 be able to tell you that similarly the, the section five thing applies to protective structures just as much as it does to any other uh, type of building so if you are looking to do works for a protected structure, they are, and, and if they are on that list of exemptions, um, 
but you're not sure whether that's you know enough to get you over the line because of the protected yeah. status you can still do that section five process and in four weeks you'll you'll have an answer generally so um you know it can be well worthwhile um in in that sense you know usually th- there's there's circumstances where you know some things are much less likely than others to to require planning let's say if you've got a, a you know a protective structure that has an existing extension on the back um which would be common enough you know you might have something that was built let's say in the, the 1970s or 80s or or even longer ago but that that isn't part of the original the original fabric yeah. it, with something like that often you know, it won't require planning, say, to refurbish that, um, okay. and and even sometimes maybe to 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 replace parts of it. But but then again, if you're looking to do anything, you know, significant, you know, I think in most circumstances you will require planning when when a protected structure is involved. Okay, so the people who bowed out of the bidding war with you, they just they they didn't want to deal with the hassle of having to apply for for planning in in one way and negotiating the things they could and couldn't touch. It was just a little too complex for them, probably. Yeah, honestly, I think it scares some people off. Um, mm-hmm. you no, know, I personally, I was I was only too happy to, to, yeah. uh, to be a <laughs> structure. And it's, you know, I'm actually, there's little things that I want to do um, to the house that, that are that are not just to, you know, improve it for my own, my own use. There's one or two small things that I'd like to do to actually reinstate features that were historically there and that are on some of the neighboring houses like there's um it's a funny kind of an arrangement at the front there's uh there's these kind of flower beds with granite curbs but big granite bollards and these mm-hmm. really heavy cast iron chains hanging between them yeah you might, the kind of chains you'd see say on stevens green or somewhere like mm-hmm. that between bollards yeah um, now the chains are not on the bollards at the front of my my house um but uh sure enough they were in the shed out the back so <laughs> no way I'm 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 hopeful that um I've got a I've been speaking to to Bushy Park Ironworks um in, in the past while just to to try and arrange to actually have them you know restored and reinstated on the front of the house which I think would be a nice something you know it, it's given back something yeah um, it's uh it's reinstating a feature that that actually is listed on the the protected structure entry for for this particular property wow. the chains they're they're listed in the in the entry so that's so specific yeah and do you need planning to put those back on good question (laughs) (laughs) um on a on a completely without prejudice basis i'm going to say no i don't need planning (laughs) to do that i'm going to do it (laughs) um and so have you i know you said you've done some works um were these kind of small repair works or have you applied for planning and and it's part of it I haven't had to apply for planning yet. Um, okay. And and there was a bit of a judgment call to be made there. Unfortunately, you know, I got a, an engineer to survey an engineer, a, a, a kind of a someone I work with regularly. Uh, kindly did a did a survey of the house before I moved in. Mm-hmm. One of the things that came back is that you know the roof the roof on top of the house is non original. It was from probably done in the nineteen seventies or thereabouts. Oh wow! And in really really bad nick, they just some absolute cowboy come in and. You know, put put slates or you know artificial slates or whatever yeah. on, on top of an old membrane, without replacing the the waterproof membrane underneath them, and they'd lay them in a pattern that meant that water could actually get up between the slates when the wind blew in a certain direction. So, um, having purchased the house, I guess about a month before, I came in very happily on a nice, uh, uh, you know, a nice day, but it rained the day before, and I, I was coming in to do a bit of painting, and I arrived in the front door to a puddle. <laughs> so um there were some very urgent works required and okay I, I in circumstances where the slates that we were taking off were completely non-original they were artificial yeah. they, were, they were modern um my my first priority obviously was to try and save the interior of the house yeah and, and to avoid you know say rot in th- there's timbers in the, in the roof structure there yep. are original timbers and I, I was quite conscious of wanting to to preserve them so so the work that was done was literally you know a straight replacement of you know modern pretty poor quality uh, uh roof slates or roof tiles I suppose with with a kind of an appropriate a kind of a more appropriate you know modern slate solution the only the only element on the outside of the roof that was original was there was some really nice ridge tiles 
Mm-hmm. Uh, ice the terracotta. Terracotta, yeah. yeah. So, so those went back on as well. We, cool. we made sure to salvage those. Now, you know, strictly speaking, you know, I I couldn't I couldn't tell you one hundred percent that that didn't require planning permission. Yeah. But, you know, as somebody who's living in a protected structure, the last thing you want is the actual the genuine bits of it that should be protected to be ruined by by yeah. something leak. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely wasn't in the business of of hanging around and 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 you know waiting to do something. I had to do it straight away. You know, perhaps if I'm I'm, I may have to do a planning application. We're gonna we're looking at kind of knocking down an old extension at the back and 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 reflooring downstairs. Non original floors coming out by the way. Just uh, (laughs) but you still need planning for both those things. Yeah, well, quite quite possibly we'll we'll have to look at it. But you know, I might do a section five, for example. And, okay. and it's where that perhaps I could, you know, cover off the 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 works that were done to the roof just to be to be extra safe. Um, what did you say was the name of the thing that was similar to Section Five to uh, ask if the works you're going to do would affect the special character of a protected structure? Section fifty-seven, I think, uh, is okay. the, the section of the act. Section fifty-seven. Um, okay. But if, if you if you just search online again, um, any council on their website should have a section. Yeah. Search for declarations on on protected structures and okay, that, declarations of protected structures. Great. Um, and one thing before we kind of jump into the thing, I want to know the things you've done on your house that you think were, were kosher to do without planning. But um, I know there's a few things when it comes to the actual planning application that are different for protected mm-hmm. structures. So one, this it can be kind of nebulous. What is the special character and what isn't, and who's going to decide whether this impacts it or not. Um, but secondly, there's also, there's the conservation report, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. And your conservation architect, you do need a conservation architect. Um, that's worth saying. And you do need to put in, as you said, a conservation report. And that report has to have some images and photos in it. So it has to have a bit of a survey of the existing building. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I suppose conservation architects are the people who are best qualified to tell you, to give you a view does this affect the special character? So, uh, you know, I'm in the lucky position that I I deal with conservation architects yeah. often. Yeah. Um, so when when that that issue arose with the roof, I was actually able to put in a call to somebody in you and said, look, this situation, it is non-original. I can tell you, mm. here's a couple of photographs. And, you know, they were, they were able to say, look, that, you know, they, they agreed, you know, it wasn't original fabric. Um, and they, I think they they probably would have agreed that what I was doing was absolutely essential that you couldn't yeah. you couldn't wait around to do it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, your conservation architect is is a key person to have on board when you're when you're doing a protective structure. It's just key to note. This doesn't mean you have to use that architect for because some people might try to be doing something without hiring an architect for you know for a job. Like maybe they're just trying to refurbish an old, an old uh, extension or they're just doing lighter works. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't have to be the same architect you hire for the whole job, but you can hire someone just to do the conservation report. Absolutely. And, you know, that's probably the bread and butter of a lot of conservation yeah. architects. When when, it, when things go on site, um, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with a protected structure, one of the type of condition you might get from the council or from the board would be, to, to kind of keep the conservation architect involved um or, or perhaps even if you're say if you are taking out some original fabric from the protective structure yeah. you might require really detailed drawings and photo surveys and stuff of the the bits that you're taking out mm-hmm. um, and that's effectively to preserve a record of how how things were before you change them okay and would that be a further information request or just a condition it could be a condition Okay. Be a condition. I've seen it as a condition. Um, cool. Times before, yeah. So how how much could somebody expect to spend to hire a conservation architect to do a conservation report and all this work? Um, I wouldn't like to put words in their mouth, obviously, but <laughs> <laughs> it it's gonna again, it's gonna vary from you know something that might cost you a couple of grand, perhaps for for a you know a, a single house if if yeah. it works. For you know straightforward enough but it could it could escalate to something that's quite significant if you're talking about a particularly sensitive building or or obviously if you're doing something that's quite significant if you're if you're making big interventions then a lot more detail has to go in there really so that's yeah 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 Yeah, i've seen a quote recently for a victorian terrace that was like 180 square meters and it wasn't too bad it was like two two thousand 
XVAT for the conservation report. But I think that's on the quite competitive side. I would say it is. Yeah. Definitely yeah. Is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and that adds time too. like all these things add time in this case that I'm, I'm familiar with. So you hire the conservation person, they go back and forth with the person who's designing it, if it's someone else. And in this particular instance, the conservation architect then asked for a method statement from the engineer on how they were going to treat a certain part of the design. So yeah. that then required getting the engineer on board, even though it's very early stages in this project. And then mm. the engineer has to kind of propose something and then make sure that's that the conservation architect is okay with it from a conservation point of view. Uh, and that added three to four months to this process. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't surprise me. There's, uh, yeah. I guess that's what they're there to do. They, yeah. they, they're looking out for the building at the end of the day as, as well sure. as, and, um, you know, if, if there is, if there's extra time needed, there's a reason, you know, there's a reason why a building is protected and it's, it's a decision that's been made by the, the local council generally, you know, the local councillors. Yeah. So, you know, your, your elected rep representatives, your council have said, this is a very important building and the conservation architect is there to kind of mediate um, between the different professions again, and, and just try and get the best outcome. Obviously you want to be able to do the works that you want to do, but you know, maybe they're just in, in in some cases they're there to make sure that those works are done in a really sensitive way, uh, yeah. with the materials and and such. Yeah, and yeah, for anyone listening, like basically the what the report ends up being, it's it's a survey. It's like an audit of imagine every inch of any old house you've ever been in. So it's like th these doors, most of them are original, need significant repairs, or um, you know, original floors throughout, except. Uh, significant dry rot in first floor um like you said like mix of artificial tiles and original tiles on the roof original joists and they evaluate everything but then they also say the way it should be repaired so like original lime plaster to be reapplied if any works are done to the walls etc and what that does is it adds huge cost to your works so i think that's another thing people why people are scared of conservation projects it's like you can't just choose any other door to go there it literally has to be an identical door or you have to repair it and repairing it is often way more expensive than buying a new modern build door absolutely but i i guess i would probably come back to that that thing i said earlier that you know if you have some sort of a 200 year old solid wood door yes. in the to me it just makes sense where possible to repair and to 100 percent yeah because at the end of the day you get something that you, you just couldn't get no matter how hard you tried if you were going to try and try and do it today um which i think is you know there's, there's a there's a real value in that as well so yeah definitely it's, it's just it adds a lot of cost it does, for people it does. considering yeah. so it's, it's a good thing to know when you're looking like even maybe early on in a property search it's like what does protected structure even mean it means like there may be questions about moving internal walls and changing doors and like like you said anything like changing a boundary wall the house we currently live in, there's an old original seawall. Um, so our house is technically semi-detached because mm. there's a gap of probably 10 centimeters between our house and, and the wall. And <laughs> the, <laughs> just because we could, we literally could not touch it. So it runs the whole length of the property and it's actually exposed at the front, which is really cool. And it has algae and old nails in it. Um, and it's That's quite lovely. interesting to see. Yeah, it's really cool because like, Obviously, we're, we're living, we live in like Sandy Mount, Irishtown. The rest is infill. So it's cool to see all the different places that man took back land. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love, um, I love that. And you're kind of driving into town up um, through Sandy Mount. And just after the, the park there, there is that kind of low level granite wall. And it's, yeah. it's incredible to think that that, I mean, obviously much further than that, but, but, you know, it's a very obvious example of where everything beyond that wall has been reclaimed yeah uh, and sure half of dublin if you look at it you know all of you know say around sir john rogerson's key and uh, that whole area um the docklands it's all yeah. it's all named from the, the floodplain so yeah yeah okay so uh we could go on forever but just to to sum up probably the most important thing people need to understand when it comes to planning is understanding the exemptions and the limitations on the exemptions. So if they're thinking of buying something, but that house would only be suitable for them if they had an X amount ex extension, 
it's maybe have somebody go with you who can identify like either a builder friend or an architect who could identify, are there old extensions that are part of this property? Because that goes into the calculations. Like you said, looking at your local development area plan to make sure something isn't on the protected structure list, doing a planning search to understand what's been approved, what's coming up nearby um, before you, you even buy something. I think these are great things to do. And these are things that if you have hired an architect that they they should and will do. The section five is a really good tip where people can, you can, if you're not sure if something qualifies for the exemption, you can apply to do that. And then when it comes to protected structures, the nuance is basically none of the exemptions really apply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with, with, with some caveats. Yeah. With some yeah. caveats. Okay. Can I, can I add one thing in just in yes. terms of what, what you also look, look at if you're looking at a buying somewhere? particularly in Ireland, I, I have a look at the flood risk maps. There's flood risk mm. maps that you've to plan. Um, and one of the Large. unfortunate features of uh, planning in Ireland, uh, particularly before and, and maybe partially during the, the Celtic Tiger, is we built on a lot of floodplains. Wow. Uh, and particularly with, you know, with, with climate change um, and rainfall intensity going up and everything, that's that's going to be really important and it already is really important um, and it could affect your property value could could actually obviously damage your property and it could affect your insurance as well mm-hmm. so do have a look at that and or or have somebody else who's who's qualified have a look at it if you're if you're in any doubt um like your solicitor could look at that right well i don't know your solicitor might not uh, <laughs> thank you for not- Pointing them out the flood risk maps like an engineer if you're if you're engineer if you're go and an engineer is the person okay. to go civil engineer okay uh, yeah that's that's worth looking into okay that's a good tip okay and then yeah looking at declarations of protected areas to see if something is a protected structure what parts of it are protected and i guess if it doesn't say what parts of it are protected you could assume like if you don't have time in the middle of a bidding war to to do this um the section 57 you could just assume literally everything in the property and it's um what's the the fancy word uh, curtilage it's curtilage everything in its curtilage are protected so do you still want this house if literally you know you can't change any of the walls and cornicing and and all of that 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 could be a good approach to take if you if it doesn't stay what's protected yeah exactly exactly but but i would i just reiterate you know there, there's so many you know there's lovely things about about uh, about having a, an older building and um, yeah. living in one as well and they, they do make, you know, incredible homes. So um, they do. I, yeah. I wouldn't like to put people off either, you know? No, totally. It's just, and, and things can be done kind of like you're doing. You've moved in and done a few smaller repairs and you're taking your time to see what you want to change. And because I suppose there's, it's a bigger decision when you're living in something so historic to be like, it's not just, oh yeah, let's throw an extension on it. You have to be really thoughtful about it. A because it's a more strenuous process, but B just because you're you're changing something with so much character. Exactly. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, um, and yeah. So I think in terms of timelines, a standard planning application for just an extension could be four to six months um, with your full set of drawings. So probably people shouldn't be trying to do planning applications by themselves, right? Like technical drawings are always going to be required, and you might be at risk of invalidating your application if you try to if a lay person tries to do it yeah and look to be honest like even even people who've who've been at it for years um you know the the validation requirements are quite stringent um so even if you're putting in an application and there might be one dimension line missing off an elevation that that can be enough to to set you back and through through uh you know, it's it's not a it's not an easy thing to 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 necessarily comply with every particular aspect of of what's what's needed. So, yeah. Uh, but but generally, more often than not, if you do a kind of a careful check of of drawings against the the regulations, there are specific requirements there, and some councils would even have a checklist at the back of their application form just to make sure that you know you comply with those things. Yeah. You know, rather than not, you can you can you can make a, a valid application, um. But but there will always be the odd one that, that there might be an issue with. So then, when it comes to the protected structure planning process, 
there you have to consider the the extra people you might need to take on board. So the conservation architect, the conservation report. So that timeline could get a little longer. And mm. I would assume that process is less straightforward in terms of you may have more requests for further information in, in that kind of process. Yeah, you might well, you might well. And you also have to, um, worth noting as well, that you, you actually have to specify when you're putting up your site notice and you're publishing your, your newspaper notice for a protected structure, you, it does have to, to to flag to the public that it is a protected structure that you're okay. next to. Thank you so much for walking us through that. I, I, I could stay on and, and talk <laughs> all day about this, but I think that was a really good, helpful overview, even of like the different steps required. Like, you know, you apply, you have eight weeks to get a decision, but there's this five week window for people to complain or support um then you get your decision but then somebody can appeal it (laughs) (laughs) if it it gets appealed then there's a new timeline if there's a request for further information there's a new timeline Uh, but the request for further information doesn't have to be the end of the world right like because that once you resubmit um whatever they've asked for they have to get back to you with another decision within four weeks yeah in most circumstances if most larger scale developments are ones that are close to uh like european sites so like ecology sites that, yeah. that can go out to eight weeks but but for generally for like a house or something like that it's it's going to be four weeks yeah uh, response on it and um, okay and it's you know sometimes getting an fi request isn't necessarily the, the worst thing in the world you might have had an objection from an, an extra neighbor for example in, in relation to one particular aspect of what you're proposing and maybe the fi request would be to to change that particular thing hmm. Um, which could, at the end of the day, actually re- reduce your chance of getting an appeal. Okay, so that's good be, to know. There can be silver linings, much as it does result in a in a delay to the whole process. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so it seems like, for for the most part, an architect does this. But going back to what you were talking about at the beginning, if somebody's kind of evaluated the lay of the land and it seems potentially complex based on what you intend to do or the type of property you have and the kind of his history and precedent in the area it might not be a bad idea, even if you're just like a private individual to hire a planning consultant just for an opinion before your application goes in, right? Yeah, yeah. And and perhaps even to, you know, to put in a report or to, um, that you know, if, if once a planning consultant is engaged, they'll also work with your architect to try and, I guess, reduce any, any issues around validation and mm. make sure that things are compliant with the regs. They'll also, I guess, prepare the, the, the little the, the smaller bits and pieces that need to go in with an application like that you know the site notice the newspaper notice the, the okay form. and for like a terraced house in, in a city what could hiring a planning consultant cost someone if you have an architect as well that they'll work with to be honest with you i i couldn't really say because mm. I, I i said it to you earlier my my uh my own experience is really with larger scale stuff yeah haven't really been engaged to do any 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 smaller scale stuff like that or at least not in in a, in a long time so what I'd recommend if, if someone's thinking about it there is there's a good list of planning consultancies up there on the Irish Planning Institute website Irish Planning Institute okay yeah so- I, I would hazard to guess just like anything when you're looking at a house project everything is kind of like a couple of grand minimum i'd say like one to two k minimum for yeah. for any kind of like expert that you bring for a one-off exactly report or evaluation then for it depends how much work it adds exactly for for kind of a, a relatively standard um residential type application if if it's you know changing an existing structure i'd say you wouldn't be too far off there obviously yeah. it's a whole different kettle of fish if you're proposing an, a new house on a, on a greenfield site or something like yeah. that yeah yeah um, because you know, for for good reason, maybe uh, those are you know, there's there's only particular circumstances where you can where you can do that. So, thank you so much, Luke. Thanks so much for sharing um, all your wisdom and expertise, and uh, for always coming back to it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not that scary, and that there's a lot of value to be had in purchasing historical properties and and bringing them back to life. And I, I agree. I think it's important work. But people should just be aware of the the realities of them of the projects and their timelines and their costs, so you can do the best by the pro- by the property and yourself. Absolutely, listen. Thanks so much. It's been great talking to you. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Interiors Podcast. To learn more about our guests or anything we mentioned today, please refer back to the show notes. You can also follow along with us on Instagram at the Interiors Podcast or on my Instagram account, Tanya Neufeld Flanagan. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please subscribe, follow, leave a review, and share the podcast with friends and family. Thank you so much and see you here next time.